This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Never in my life have I said I just want to go home and have a salad. <laughs> Not once. Uh. Hello and welcome to Savor. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And for this, our fourth in our Asheville episodes, our mini-series on Asheville, we're talking about nostalgic foods. Yeah, things that you ate or drank growing up. Like maybe your family made them from scratch or maybe going to get them was a special treat. We've all got them. For Asheville, there's one food you'll probably hear come up quite often in this conversation around nostalgic foods, or just in general, really. A dish you can't get away from, even if you want to. I mean, honestly, I hate to say barbecue because we're in a barbecue <laughs> place. But, like, growing up, my dad and his friends would always roast, like, whole pigs all the time on our mountain. And, like, literally our entire mountain smelled like a pig, so that was kind of cool. So I feel like barbecue... Obviously, I hate God, that's so lame to say that, but no. I think it's barbecue, honestly. Yeah. You know? That's Graham House, who's the chef of a vegetable-focused restaurant called Sovereign Remedies, where he works to prove that plants can be the star of a meal. Though his very first job as a teenager was at an area barbecue place, and he does have these memories. Nostalgia is a tricky thing. It is, it is. And does this bring us to our question? <gasps> Nostalgia. What is it? <laughs> well, the word was coined in 1688 by a Swiss physician in reference to what he believed was a mental illness, a depression and anxiety in homesick soldiers. But today, we distinguish between homesickness, a stressful kind of longing, and nostalgia, which is more bittersweet. Like, homesickness is for something you can't have, a place or time that's gone or far away or out of reach. Nostalgia is for moments 
when we felt safe or loved, and those feelings can be replicated. It's a powerful feeling. We chatted about it a little while we were doing a tasting of Amari with the distillers at Etta Rhine and their friend, Kelly Denson. One of the best things I heard was I was up in New York visiting the Bon Appetit tasting room, and one of the editors there is Italian-American, and she was telling me that, you know, she remembered going back to Italy and all of her relatives would, every stop that they would make, they would break out the nacino. She said, you know what, this tastes like my grandmother's nacino. And to me, that is the best compliment that you could give. Actually, maybe that might have been the second best compliment because the first compliment was when you first tried it and we were hanging out at the bar at our uh, Fernet release party and I let her try it, she started crying. I did. I had an emotional response to it the first time I had it. My best friend's like elbowing me in the side, like, you had an emotional response. And I was like, shh, kind of embarrassing. <laughs> like, some booze made me cry. Hush your mouth. <laughs> oh, was, it, was it like a nostalgic response? Or, I mean, was it just so good that you were like, oh, heck? Um, I'm not 100% sure because it felt like nostalgia, but I've never had anything like it. Now that I've heard some of the stories of how it's created and, you know, what goes into it, I kind of, I don't know, it sounds really cheesy, but it's like tasting, you know, someone's grandmother's pasta sauce. You know, it's like the love and everything that was put into it and the spirit of the making of it. Um, I think that's what I would credit my feelings of nostalgia to, I think. This is the high art to me, right, of spirit making, is if you can have that kind of an emotional connection with people, right? That it, it somehow, the, the flavors, the experience, like, brings back memories. I had a woman come in here and she was tasting the Fernet. And she took a taste of the Fernet and she said, you know what, this reminds me of hunting with my father when I was a little girl. I know I keep hammering this home, but we need to watch Ratatouille. <laughs> It's so important to this whole conversation. (laughs) Someday. In the meanwhile, I can only assume that food memories, experience and taste and smell play some kind of role there. Yes. Okay. To be fair, though, smell is the most nostalgia-triggering sense. Researchers aren't entirely sure why this is, but they think it has to do with the physical way that our brains handle information. All right, so in our brains, we've got the limbic system. This includes a part of the brain called the amygdala, which helps us process emotion, and the hippocampus, which processes and stores memories. The limbic system also contains the olfactory bulb, which processes scent input from our nasal cavity. Like, there are direct connections among these three brain bits. Studies have shown that scents create more positive and more emotional senses of nostalgia than other triggers— And scientists think it's because of these close connections among scent and emotion and memory in our brains. Which brings us back to, in the case of people who grew up around Asheville, barbecue. That scent covering the whole mountain thing. Good barbecue done correctly in the state is seen as an art. And throughout America, uh, these cooking techniques have been passed down for centuries, and they inspire some serious nostalgia and local pride. There's even a North Carolina barbecue society— On their website, they call North Carolina the barbecue capital of the world and has Cradle of the Q as a registered trademark. There's also an organization called the Campaign for Real Barbecue, 
that was founded in North Carolina. It bestows what it calls True Q certifications, a recognition that a restaurant is cooking the style of barbecue traditional in the area in terms of both meat and sauce types and using wood coals or charcoal as its sole fuel source. But of course, Asheville has mixed things up a bit. It's kind of their (laughs) M.O. Like at Barbecue Joint 12 Bones, where you can order pork ribs (gasps) covered in blueberry chipotle sauce. (gasps) They have some pretty big fans, though, like, say, President Obama. He visited three times and ordered these ribs on all three occasions. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. There's a whole North Carolina barbecue trail We didn't get to go on it, but we did get to try some barbecue in Asheville, of course. Before our highly anticipated ghost comedy tour, we stopped by Buxton Hall Barbecue. This is a true Q-certified joint that also mixes it up a little bit. They had a sauce bar. (laughs) Also, Super Producer Dylan got a Superfly shirt. We talked about it in the studio, the shirt, but also the barbecue, (laughs) when we got back. It was so good. Oh, it was delicious. And pretty fairly priced. I mean, the portion size was certainly heckin' gigantic. Yeah. As with everything that we ate in Nashville, I'm pretty sure. And we had a fried chicken platter. We did. And a pulled pork platter. Mm -hmm. And some mussels with hot broth and bacon. They were so good. They They were were, were smoky. Yeah. And they, they, they were a flavor experience that I didn't expect from a mussel. So flavorful. Oh, there was a charred lemon on the plate. There was. <laughs> Everything there was very good. And we also had bourbon cheer wine slushies, which was very Southern or yeah. very oh, Asheville, North yeah. Carolinian. Yeah. I don't really like soda pop because it gets too sweet for me. But, man, I really enjoyed that thing. Yeah. The flavor of bourbon and the flavor of cheer wine complement each other so well. Mm-hmm. So well. Like, Dylan doesn't even like bourbon. I know. And it was great. (laughs) So that's a ringing endorsement. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This is true. So in this one meal, we covered a bunch of these local favorites. Fried chicken, pulled pork, cheer wine, which if you haven't had, is a uh, black cherry-flavored soft drink. Uh, Bourbon, bacon-infused, everything. We also had beans and greens, cornbread, potato salad, coleslaw. We ate a lot of these traditional foods on our trip. Newer creations, too, of course, but, you know, we went for biscuits and gravy. We had Hop and John, chicken and waffles, things that might not count as nostalgic for us. Did anything strike your sense of nostalgia? Yeah, fried chicken is a big one for me. My mom used to make it for me on my birthday. Sometimes she still does. And I maintain she makes the best fried chicken I've ever had. Oh, man. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of this is different from the types of food that I grew up eating, but I do have really good adult memories of these foods from when I moved to Atlanta after college. And it all fits into a category related to nostalgia, comfort food. But before we get into that, let's pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Apple Park. Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. 
Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. Mother's Day is right around the corner. And in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So, comfort food. What is it? Peanut butter. (laughs) (laughs) And a chocolate milkshake, but, like, not a very good one. And French fries (laughs) to balance out the sweetness. And also mac and cheese. (laughs) Right? (laughs) That's what it is for me, anyway. More broadly, comfort food is pretty much a food that brings you comfort. Like a warm cookie or maybe 75 on a rainy night when you're going through a bad breakup. Anyone? Is that also just me? Any food with a high caloric content and or with a high salt or sugar count will light up your brain's reward center. Sugars and starches prompt your brain to create serotonin, which makes you feel calm and kind of well in general. And salt can prompt oxytocin, which is a kind of warm and fuzzy sort of brain chemical. But that doesn't get to the heart of what a comfort food is, right? Neuroscientist Rachel Hertz wrote in her book, Why You Eat What You Eat, that comfort foods are usually foods that we ate as children because when it comes to aromas and flavors, our first associations are the ones that stick most indelibly. Which means, for a lot of us, a comfort food does have to do with nostalgia. Yeah, it's like a warm food hug from the past, reminding you of when your mom made you chicken soup when you were sick or of meals you shared with loved ones every year. These memories make you feel less alone. 
The reason a not very good chocolate milkshake <laughs> is one of my comfort foods is because my mom would make me one when I was sad or sick. Just Breyers ice cream, chocolate ice cream, and 2% milk in a cup, and then she would mix it together with a spoon. Oh, yeah, simple. Even Marcel Proust reported experiencing this. After biting into one of his comfort foods, reports vary on what it was. He said, I had ceased now to feel mediocre, contingent, mortal. The feeling infinitely transcended those savers. And I wanted to include it because it had the name of the podcast Title line. <laughs> yes. Yes. Success. Huh. But yeah, uh, it's not all psychological. What could be going on here is a feedback loop among these positive nostalgic memories. For example, memories reminding you of a nice time when you had ice cream and your body's physical chemical stress system. In the lab, rats have been observed to go for higher-calorie foods when they're subjected to stress, and that when they eat those foods, their brains produce less stress hormones. Researchers still aren't sure why. One study suggested that something about the presence of abdominal fat deposits in rats that were given the high-calorie foods was physically changing the way that the rats' bodies handled stressful situations, like for the better. Of course, rats are not people. And psychology does play a role here, too, in people, less the rats, probably. Um, Research has shown that people for whom emotional interpersonal connections are very important, those people eat more comfort foods in response to loneliness, and they get more comfort out of them than people who do not connect with others so closely. Even thinking about their comfort foods can make people feel less lonely. Tapping into these memories might make us feel safe or rewarded or connected. There's a gender breakdown of comfort foods, too. Women tend to seek out sweets when they're feeling lonely, anxious, or guilty, and report feeling guilty after eating them. Men crave a hearty meal as reward for success and don't really report that guilt afterwards. Oh, Oh, yay, our relationships with food. Yes. (laughs) That's a whole other episode. Oh, yeah. If we look at the history of the term comfort food itself, one of the first times comfort food appeared in print was in a 1977 Washington Post article all about Southern food, but particularly the comfort food that is shrimp and grits. Which is, by the way, the dish that Stu Helm recommends you try all over Asheville. Mm -hmm. He's the one that we heard at the top of the episode talking about salad. So he's not a super fan of salad, (laughs) but shrimp and grits. Shrimp and grits, yes. He likes The term comfort food goes back a little earlier in the U.S., though, to maybe the 1960s. A 1965 Washington Post article called Keep and Trim, Her Problems Add Up to Too Many Pounds, was almost there. (laughs) And yes, I want to talk all about that, but we must move forward. The term was also used in a 1966 article called Sad Child May Overeat. Huh. Yeah. By the 1980s, comfort food was its own genre. There was a cookbook published in 1979 by one Judith Olney called Comforting Food. She put it this way, Ask the same hundred people what foods give them comfort now, and the answers are more mature, more diverse. Surely, soups, hot cereals, and a listing of potato dishes, apple dishes, egg dishes, dishes my grandmother used to make. Then there's a pause. And just as surely, a kind of defensiveness seems to arise, for the foods are more humble than prevailing style might dictate. They're old-fashioned. And this might be the most damaging. In being unassuming, they're often economical as well, which hinders our all-too-human desire to consume conspicuously. Though I would say that restaurants are tapping into that, too. 
in this our era of Instagram, it's not just that they're serving a milkshake. It's a $15 milkshake that's studded with cotton candy and gold-coated gummy bears. I don't know. I think that the current comfort food trend started from a place of simplicity. The boom began exactly when we entered the economic recession around 2008. I kind of love how comfort foods are different for different people and that they vary by country. Oh, yeah. It reminds me of the Amortentia potion from Harry <laughs> Potter where everyone smells something different. Yeah. Harry oh. Potter mention of the episode. <laughs> but anyway, an article I read over at The Atlantic made the case that for a lot of Americans, comfort food equals fast food. A lot of New American restaurants are riffing off of that using government cheese in their cooking, for example, or making all the versions of mac and cheese. Stu Helm, who is a local food writer in Asheville, commented on this. Right now, one of the trends that I'm excited about, and it's not the newest trend, but it's getting gaining in popularity, especially with younger chefs, is a combining um, high-end ingredients and fancy food with lowbrow ingredients. And one of my favorite examples is uh, a place called the Underground Cafe. Serves a wonderful smash burger, an excellent piece of beef, uh, and then he puts it on a King's Hawaiian roll. So it's a wonderful combination of the high-quality beef with a really trashy bun. And the trashy aspect is very comforting to a lot of people because a lot of us grew up with parents who were in the early stages of their careers, didn't have a lot of money, and so they tended to buy the trashier foods to feed us as children. And those were good times for a lot of us as children, even though we were unaware of the economic hard times. And so those trashy foods actually touch our sort of comfort points. And so it's really nice to eat a, a trashy burger, but know that the beef is sourced impeccably. So that's a trend I see, combining the high end and the low end. We saw this combo all over, like at Buxton Hall Barbecue. Now, a word here. Buxton Hall, despite being in Asheville, the heart of western North Carolina, actually serves primarily eastern South Carolina-style barbecue. More on the difference there in a minute, but for now, just understand that for some barbecue purists, this can be considered heretical. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're serving really good down-home cooking. And their pitmaster, Elliot Moss, was a semifinalist for the 2017 James Beard Award for Best Chef in the Southeast because of this down-home cooking that he's doing there. We caught up with Elliot on the phone, and he listed nostalgia as the reason he opened the restaurant. My grandfather was a welder and taught my dad how to weld. And we grew up with homemade barbecue pits that we would cook hogs um, that my other grandfather would raise early on and then it just became a family tradition that we would cook hogs around the holidays for thanksgiving and christmas and have a big party and have everyone over and pick on the pig and uh those are just some memories i had my whole life as a little kid and um i started out cooking food for a living and after a few years decided i want to open my own restaurant and i couldn't think of anything else but barbecue that i wanted to do um so that's that's why i do barbecue but okay Let's break down all of that barbecue-style stuff just a little bit. According to the USDA, barbecued meats, and this is the sexiest quote of the episode, shall be cooked by the direct action of dry heat resulting from the burning of hardwood or the hot coals therefrom for a sufficient period to assume the usual characteristics of a barbecued article, which include the formation of a brown crust on the surface and the rendering of the surface fat. The product may be basted with a sauce during the cooking process. The weight of barbecued meat shall not exceed 70% of the weight of the fresh, uncooked meat. Very sexy indeed. <laughs> There's a hot pun that could be made there, but we shall move on. 
In America's barbecue belt, there are four distinct barbecue traditions. Texas, Kansas City, Memphis, and Carolina. Just to be clear, the sauce more than the cooking style or meat is what defines a regional barbecue. It's all three. I mean, all agree on the low and slow application of heat, as described above. But the type of animal used, the cut of meat used, the type of wood used, whether or not you use a dry rub, whether or not you baste the meat during cooking, all of that can create a lot of variation before you get to the sauce that you serve it with. And within those four main styles, you've got a lot of subcategories. Because of these variances in cooking technique and sauce, barbecue may be the closest thing America has to a national cuisine, according to Nick Solaris over at Eater. And we've got some history and some controversy for you. But first, one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. 
The history of American and particularly North Carolinian barbecue is quite long, but in a nutshell, historians think that indigenous peoples of Florida and the Caribbean had a meat grilling technique as far back as at least the 1500s. The meats were doused in a sauce of lemon and red pepper, and for the most part were used on less appetizing things like lizards or alligators, until the Spanish arrived and brought with them hogs. Pork became the go-to meat option. The Arawak called this style of cooking meats barbacots, which the Spaniards translated to barbacoa, and from there we got the English word barbecue, which can be spelled multiple ways. I did not know this until doing the research for this episode. Oh, yeah. It's completely legit. The Q versus the C. Not in my book. Oh, goodness. <laughs> that, that's the controversy oh, for wow. me. <laughs> When enslaved people from the Caribbean were shipped to the mainland in the early 19th century, they brought barbecue with them. Newly arriving Haitian refugees may have brought it with them as well. Folks further up from South Florida started subbing out lemon for the easier-to-find vinegar. In 1748, a botanist on a trip to North America noticed slaves in Philadelphia bottling a mix of guinea peppers and salt for meat. Since then, different types of barbecue sauce have proliferated throughout the states, but particularly in the South. Back to North Carolina, which has two main types of regional barbecue, eastern and western, with a western sometimes called Lexington-style or Piedmont-style. Well, let's talk about eastern-style first, where whole hog is the meat of choice. Because eastern-style sauce hasn't changed too much from those first barbecue sauces the slaves were making, it is sometimes known as the mother of all American sauces. It's been around for centuries. It's a fairly thin sauce, and that's because it's just vinegar, usually cider vinegar, and spices like cayenne, crushed red pepper, black pepper, salt, a little sugar, hot sauce, typically Texas peat or Tabasco, and maybe some water. No tomato here. Mm -mm. <laughs> Meat from the whole hog is pulled and chopped together. Lexington, or Piedmont style, on the other hand, involves wood-smoked pork shoulder, which is a rich, dark meat, finely chopped and covered with a tomatoey, vinegary, peppery sauce. And that tomatoey bit? It comes from the addition of Heinz ketchup, starting with its debut in 1876, making a dip. Ah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was, and is... <laughs> controversial, splitting North Carolina into two warring barbecue factions. It reminds me of those house-divided college <laughs> stickers. <laughs> I bet they have those. Oh, yeah. The real deal Lexington style may have solidified itself during World War I. At the time, food vendors would cart around chopped-up pork shoulder, not as difficult as a whole hog to transport, to sell at these pop-up barbecue stands. Legend goes that five men of German descent really wanted to recreate a dish from their homeland, which was pork shoulder with a sauce that was both sweet and tangy. To accomplish this, just a little ketchup was added, enough to change the color and the taste, but not really that watery texture. This is also where the common practice of adding ketchup to coleslaw in the region got its start. Nowadays, Western Carolina-style sauce has gotten just a smidge thicker and sweeter and more complex or complicated, as some people would say. <laughs> it includes a little bit more sugar, a bit of butter, plus stuff like lemon juice, Worcestershire sauce, and mustard powder. I've also heard that a not uncommon family secret ingredient is some amount of Coca-Cola or Dr. Pepper or both. Scandalous. Scandal. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> this divide of barbecue sauces is so serious in the state that in 2015, Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, yes, the insurance company, <laughs> weighed in on which was the healthier style. Spoiler It's Eastern style. According to them, (laughs) it's because, you know, Western style sauce has more sugar and the traditional pork shoulder of the Western style is a fattier cut of meat than you get if you have the whole hog in the mix. Mm -hmm. It also gets political, this whole discussion, and not just because the barbecue catering businesses get a substantial boost around elections. Ah. Two House bills were introduced, both (laughs) defeated, to get each style named the official barbecue of North Carolina. But one thing pretty much everyone in North Carolina agrees on when it comes to barbecue, Texas style sucks. (laughs) That's their opinion, not ours, again. We're just reporting (laughs) (laughs) what we've researched. (laughs) There are whispers of a third style of North Carolina barbecue, but we're not going to talk about that right now. We've probably incurred enough barbecue wrath as it is. And a helpful tip when ordering, brown means more of a smoky flavor, white means leaner. And diet willing, get the mac and cheese. Everyone can agree on mac and cheese at least. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was the sound of me willfully ignoring the different styles of mac and cheese. That's a whole other argument. But no, I love these regional pride spats about what constitutes a real or right version of a food because it means that you're passionate about it. But the fun thing about the difference between nostalgic food and comfort food is that they're a Venn diagram. A food that you're nostalgic for might not be a nutritionally void caloric bomb and you can find new foods tremendously comforting. We also spoke with Jamie Ager, the third-generation farmer in charge of the Asheville meat producer Hickory Nut Gap Farm. Here's what he said when we asked him about his nostalgic foods. I grew up with my parents on a big garden, so that's all kind of what my experience was with, like, the summertime. Pork chops, that was always our favorites as kids, like mashed potatoes out of the garden that are like new potatoes, you know, so oh, yeah. they, they just came out of the garden and they're small and they're really yummy and they have lots of butter. And then, <laughs> you know, maybe some uh, a nice salad, something like that, or some peas. Peas were always good. Although we never really picked peas much because we just went out there and ate them right out of the garden. So despite that quote from Stu at the top of the episode, yes, a salad can be nostalgic. And back on the comfort end, Some of my personal comfort foods are things that I'd never heard of growing up. Pho, chicken vindaloo, sushi, takoyaki. So, you know, Eastern Carolina barbecue can certainly still do something for Western Carolinians. It can. I love that you have a gesture of, like, Of, like, yeah, peace and calm. I'm holding both (laughs) hands out, palms forward. Yes. (laughs) We can come together over barbecue. We can. (laughs) We got to speak with another restaurateur who's bringing comfort food to Asheville, Mirwan Arani, the chef and CEO of the Chai Pani Restaurant Group, which mostly serves Indian street food. Growing up, his mother cooked at the family's bed and breakfast in India, where she served everything from Indian staples to things that she thought would appeal to Westerners, a Neapolitan-style pizza, meatloaf, apple pie. So I think that he had this basis for an expanded view of what's welcoming for folks. And he says that he was drawn to Indian street food specifically because it's food by everybody for everybody. Yeah. So, you know, this this thing that had been prickling in my head forever was that why is the only food in, available in America um, this 
strip mall lunchtime buffet with curries and naan and chicken tikka masala. And uh, this is food that I never ate growing up. I, I didn't eat naan unless I went to a restaurant. And I'm walking around saying, where's the homestyle cooking? Where's the meals that we eat every day at home? Where's the, um, the street food of India, which is so much more interesting and varied and fun and approachable than sort of this exotic, you know, curry and rice and stuff that we don't even really eat. I jokingly called it banquet food or wedding food because it's the kind of food that you get when you go to a wedding. But if there is one food that can be described truly as Indian food, it's our street food. And the reason being because street food has no regionality or culture or nationality or, or religion associated to it. The way street food evolved was, you know, as migrants left working on farms from wherever their regions were to the big cities like Delhi and Mumbai and Calcutta and Bangalore, um, many of the enterprising ones that became street hawkers started just mashing up food. And that's what I love about it. I, I kind of describe it like a sort of a DJ mashing up various beats and rhythms to create a whole new track. And, and that's what street food is. And it's very unique. And it's been a success. Mirwan attributes lots of that to his prior life as like a general business human and to the supportive community. But yeah, he has two Indian street food places in Asheville, another two in the Atlanta area with more on the way, a spice blend company. And he partnered with Elliot, our barbecue pit master, to open Buxton Hall. It's different flavors and styles, but it's all comfort food. We wanted to end with another soundbite from Elliot about one of the most economical, down-homey dishes on their menu, hash and rice. Yeah, the hash is a byproduct from making barbecue. You don't really see it much other than South Carolina. Um, Ours is a process of all the fatty bits that we scrape out of the hog. We confit those overnight and save all the fat that's rendered, and we butter our buns and fry some things in that, make gravy. Uh, we save all those bits and, you know, a week's worth of cooking hogs. We have a lot of those bits and we mix that with stock that we've made from pulling the bones and we put some ground up pork liver in there for some good flavor uh, and a few other secret things. And we cook it overnight and we blend it up and it's kind of like a meat gravy. Some old timers put it over there barbecue like it's a barbecue sauce it kind of has that flavor a lot of people eat it over grits in the morning for breakfast um one old man told me one time that that barbecue is like cocaine and hash is like crack so <laughs> once you taste it i have people tell me all the time you know, i think about that hash all the time it's the most soulful and it's the thing that i'm the most proud of on the menu for sure just because of all the love we put into it And most places just throw all that stuff away and you can put some time and make it taste really yummy. Oh, we didn't eat that while we were at Buxton Hall. And one of our great regrets. I know. That clip makes me so hungry. (laughs) We can always make a return trip. Oh, okay. I guess we, I guess. (laughs) Asheville, part two. (laughs) The awakening, the reckoning. Electric boogaloo. (laughs) Ooh, I like that. That brings us to the end of this episode on nostalgia, on barbecue, and for me personally, on many thoughts about ratatouille. And milkshakes. And milkshakes. (laughs) If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. What are your nostalgic foods? What are your comfort foods? 
Our email address is hello at saverpod.com. You can also find us on social media. What? <laughs> We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SaverPod. Please, please do write in and let us know what you think. Thank you to all of our guests today and to Landis Taylor and the whole team over at ExploreAsheville.com for helping us find them and to our co-executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis, for helping us find them. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Yes, he's got a helper. It's great. <laughs> they make our jobs easy. Um, and also to our other co-executive producer here at Stuff Media, Julie Douglas, for all of her good advice. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. Have you ever had, like, divinity? Like, really good southern divinity candy? No. Oh, oh educate me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure it's just sugar and maybe butter. Sometimes it's served with nuts in it. It's sort of chewy and just dissolves. My aunt does something like that with potatoes. She calls it potato candy. That sounds great. I only she only makes it at Christmas time, but she like mashes potatoes yeah. and I like does a butter thing and then like a powdered sugar and then she rolls it out and puts like peanut butter on top and then rolls it into a, like a little spiral. Like the log. Yeah. yeah. And then slices. But it. Yeah, like that just like, I know it sounds so I don't know. Appalachian. Yeah. Yeah, definitely an Appalachia thing, but um we like we like our taters around here. <laughs> but that's what how you describe it, that's what it makes me think of. But. Yeah, no that that sounds like it would be about the same about the same texture. Does it yeah. kinda of melt in your mouth? Oh man, it's making my mouth water thinking about it. Like I only eat it at Christmas time and I'm like in my mouth I'm just like, oh man, like potato candy would be so good right now. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. 
Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.